Hello and welcome to Rise of RevOps. This episode features an interview with Seth McGuire, Chief Revenue Officer at Galileo Financial Technologies. Galileo is a financial technology company that enables fintechs, banks, emerging and established brands to build differentiated financial solutions that deliver exceptional customer-centric experiences. Prior to joining Galileo, Seth was president and COO at Backbone PLM, where he managed the company's revenue, operations, and overall company performance. Earlier, he spent nearly six years at Twitter in senior and management positions. In this episode, Seth discusses the importance of working cross-functionally to overcome obstacles, putting people first internally and externally, and his recipe for RevOps success. But first, a brief word from our sponsor. Rise of RevOps is brought to you by Qualified. Qualified's Pipeline Cloud is the future of pipeline generation for revenue teams that use Salesforce. Learn more about the Pipeline Cloud on qualified.com. And now please enjoy this interview with Seth McGuire, Chief Revenue Officer at Galileo Financial Technologies, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Rise of RevOps. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. And today we are joined by a special guest. Seth, how are you? I'm doing great today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Excited to chat about RevOps. Excited to chat about Galileo and all of the cool things in between. Taking a step back, can you tell us how did you get into RevOps? Yeah, well, for me, it's been a bit of a journey to get into business in general. And from there, RevOps. So uh, my parents are both professors, liberal arts professors. And so growing up in my household wasn't a lot of focus on business per se and what business is. And it wasn't really till I got to college that I discovered what was a really interesting entire world I hadn't explored before. So I went to, to Georgetown for undergrad and Georgetown has a student operated student owned business called Students of Georgetown that manages a grocery store, several coffee shops, book reseller business, a shipping and storage business for summers. And I took a part-time job there just to, just to pay the bills at the grocery store. And over four years, made my way into the upper management of it at that time, eventually running the movie store, which for those who are old enough to remember is where you would go to rent a movie on a Friday or Saturday night before returning that VHS. And so as part of that, it was really my first exposure to business. It was, you know, getting enmeshed in Excel spreadsheets and, and looking at a P&L and trying to figure out, oh, these are expenses. Oh, they have a word for that. Oh, here's how we made money. Oh, they call that revenue. And so that was really my first introduction to business. I won't argue I was very good at it. They let me do it for the years I was there. But upon graduation, I went into consulting, spent a few years consulting, and then went back to, to business school. And really coming out of business school is where joining a startup out here in Boulder called Ganip that I was really exposed to what I'd call revenue operations by my definition, which has to do with bringing together all the different functions that you need to cross team align and collaborate on to deliver revenue to the org. And so that startup, Ganip, was really where for the first time I began to see how marketing and sales and partnership and all these pieces can come together to help an organization grow. And so I think that was the journey, but Business was really that first thing in college. And then by the time I got to Ganip, it was really starting to pull it together to say, well, how do these operations work together to kind of grow an organization? And flash forward to Galileo, tell us a little bit about the company we all sell to and, uh, and that customer profile. Galileo is a really fun organization. So, you know, our parent company is, is SoFi, which is a publicly traded and chartered bank uh, that serves consumers. What Galileo does is provide a platform for builders, brands, 
banks, neobanks, fintechs, really anyone who's looking to create a payment or banking organization to be able to leverage the platform we've built to deliver on that promise. So it's very customer-centric. We take a range of different products and API products and enable our customers to build financial products for their customers. And so that extends, again, from all the way from banks to an organization that may just want to create simple virtual card payments. So wide range of solutions there. We work with a lot of well-known companies out there. So a lot of the banks you would know there are people who've built upon our infrastructure. And tell me about your RevOps team and your definition of RevOps for Galileo. So again, for me, revenue operations really comes down to the cross-functional collaboration and the strategy and the execution on a strategy to grow revenue. Sales is a piece of that. And I do think that's one of the common mistakes about revenue operations. I just think it's about sales or it's about the itemized pieces that go into a sale. But for me, it's really about a lot of the behind the scenes collaboration that goes from building a product that you know will serve a customer's need in market to bringing that product to meet them at their point of pain, to developing the surrounding ecosystem of partners to help serve that solution, and then finally to deliver that solution to your customers in a way that helps them grow while helping you grow. To me, that encompasses revenue operations because it is a very cross-functional and very company-oriented piece of the puzzle. You need the entire company thinking about revenue operations for it to be successful. Anything specific about Galileo and the, and the RevOps team that, that y'all have? that's different, perhaps? Well, I think our people are pretty amazing. I don't know if that's, that's different, <laughs> but I, I think they're one of the best teams in the business. You know, maybe what's unique about us is, and I hope this isn't unique, but in my experience, it can be unique, which is we have a very, very tight focus on the client and really building from who the client is as we think about not only our product set, but our go-to-market as well. My team is organized by functions, so we have a sales function, uh, which is new logos or new clients. We have a marketing function whose job it is to help tell that story both to existing clients and new clients. We have a partnerships team whose job it is to do kind of non-direct revenue relationships, whether that's product partnerships or channel partnerships or you know various other third parties. And then we have kind of a solutions engineering or design team whose job it is to assist sales as well as be a conduit back to product. Those are what falls within our revenue work today. At times, our account management has fallen within there as well, and at times not, depending upon where the, the organization is at the moment. But if I look at that functional basis, well, that's how we're organized from a reporting level, the way we approach go-to-market, and really the way the team is organized and how we think and how really we talk and interact and the way our metrics are built is around the client. So it is to say we have several segments we serve. We look at those segments and say, well, we're going to attack their pain point. What are the pains that they're feeling there? How can we think about those things? How can we reach them at the point of that pain in our marketing or in our sales conversations? And then how can we deliver a solution that serves it? And despite the reporting structure, again, that's functional, organizing around that client is, I think, the most important thing for us. And it's it's what we spend most of our meetings on. It's how we think about metrics. It's how we think about success is within each of those client bases because each is different and they require different focuses. And I found that that isn't always true at organizations, right? Once you get into kind of functional lines, it could sometimes be hard to break out of them and think cross-functionally across how do we solve this problem or work with this customer. Yeah, and so as a chief revenue officer, and obviously like this show thinking about RevOps, RevOps being obviously like increasingly critical, maybe it always <laughs> was, but uh, now it has a better yeah. name, to CROs. Do you think like, how do you think other CROs are, are thinking about RevOps? 
It, it's a good question. And I do see this role appearing more now. But I, I look back 20 years ago to almost the transformation that the marketing office went through, where you saw CMOs really grow. Originally, CMOs were very much a consumer product company branded item, right? It's how do you have these big thoughts coming out of agencies of the 1950s and 60s? How do you have someone who can take that internally to a consumer brand and then push that broad narrative or story out in market? But the CMO really developed across the last 20 years to more of a focus on that sales piece and how we think about revenue. And I think from there, 20 years ago, you had the, the chief customer officer or the chief success, customer success officer kind of grow out of that, which was, well, how do I take that same lens to how we serve our customers? I think CRO is the, the next step in that conversation, which is thinking through, again, not from a functional basis, but how do I think about the root of revenue for our organization? And so that's different in every company I talk to because how they generate revenue can be different. How a SaaS company might do this might be very different from a company selling actual goods. Right. But at the end of the day, what CROs I think have in common and revenue orgs is that inherent focus on the underlying levers of revenue and how to get there by bringing together those functions. But in my mind, it does follow a little bit of that path that CMOs and CCOs laid out before it. And I think we're kind of seeing this become the new term for gathering those cross-functional groups as you think about how you can pull those levers. In the course of this this series, what's so fun about talking about RevOps is there's so many different ways to to do yeah. this thing. So some folks have the VP of RevOps report directly to the CFO. Some people have it be to the CRO. Some people, you know, have it go into just have siloed functional areas mm-hmm. where it's sort of like not holistic. Do you have a take on that of of where it should live? I, I don't primarily because, again, as you say, it, it is different for each org. I do have a general precept that your organizational model should follow your strategy rather than vice versa. So I think that question mm-hmm. becomes more important as you think about the overall go-to-market. If it is primarily product-led growth, you know, heavy marketing drive inbound, you might have a different approach than enterprise sales with you know SWAT teams that are swarming an enterprise deal to talk about it. You might organize differently in terms of, well, who do I need to make the decision here? I think there's also a leadership background component to that. My background, while I have some sales background, it's really more on the partnerships and kind of revenue generating partnerships and large deals was the initial entree for me into revenue operations. That might be very different. You might structure differently if the leader in your organization has a heavier marketing background or is a pure sales background. So I think all those pieces play into the puzzle. It's what's right for the company in terms of the go-to-market, and then who are the strongest players we have on the table and what's their background. And, and in a way, the interplay of those two, I think, starts to dictate that organizational structure and how you'll achieve the most. You've been in the role now quite a bit, but thinking back to those first six months or even the last six <laughs> months, how has your view of RevOps changed? Mm. I would say this is... Um, in the last 10 years, I've probably had three major C-level roles, if you will. And each of those was in a different industry. You know, I spent uh, several years at Twitter where I eventually ran and acted as GM for the developer platform business for Twitter, which is one of their business lines. And our clients in those cases were enterprise developers who were building solutions on our APIs. I then went to a startup here in Boulder called Backbone, which is design software and kind of product collaboration software for direct-to-consumer goods, and then came here to Galileo, which again serves banks and payment organizations who are building these products. So each of those client sets are very different. In many ways, they have some themes across them, which is certainly there's a developer focus in a lot that I do. 
an API platform in a lot that I do. I like platforms that people can build on top of and create their own unique goods and services on. But as I think about each of those roles, the first six months in a way is always the same, which is the people. It's one, who are the people on this team? What are their strengths? What are their gaps? What are the things that they're missing? What are the places they're blocked? What are the things that frustrate them? And then there's the people which are our clients. And you know what are their concerns? What are the areas that we deliver well for them? What are the areas that are a challenge? And I think the first six months in any role, spending time with those two places is really important before you make big process changes, before you make broad stroke you know, strategy changes. It's really getting deep with those. So for me, products at a root basis from the people who work with you and from your clients who use those products. And that's, that's the best use of those first six months. I'm now two and a half years in this role And so for me, the last six months, you're starting to approach that time where, one, you feel like you really know the things, right? So decisions get a little bit easier because for the first year, you're kind of like, well, thanks for asking me that question. I'm going to get back to you in a minute. And then you got to go ask three other people about something. You're like, what am I missing here? Why wasn't this decided before? By two and a half years in, you, you know a lot of those pieces. So you're able to move a lot more quickly. But the learning and the lesson there then is to spend time pausing yourself and asking, Am I making this decision quickly because of my own bias and my own internal call to action? And is that okay? Right? Maybe that's okay. Or is this a place I do need to refine and ask opinion? And should I be making this decision? Or am I stepping in the way of my team? And so I think increasingly as you mature in a role, that becomes the thread to unpack, which is where am I needed and where do I need to step out of the way of my team? All right, let's get to our next segment, Rev Obstacles. Obstacle, obstacle. An obstacle to what? There's your obstacle! These are about those tough parts of RevOps. What's the hardest or some of the hardest uh, RevOps problems you faced in the last year or so? Yeah, I think the most interesting, and I'll say hardest in some ways is because it's it's not a bad challenge, but it's a really interesting challenge because it's a complex one, is that SoFi has made two acquisitions across the past few years. One was of Galileo, one was of a platform called Technosys, which serves a slightly different customer type than Galileo, was more focused. It serves both non-banks and banks, but was very focused on, on banking architecture and infrastructure. It has a series of products that help to modernize bank architecture and processes for banks. And then Galileo, which did that for a lot of non-banks who do want to have banking and payment solutions. And after the Technosys acquisition, we have integrated pieces of that puzzle together so that our go-to-market is able to accurately serve any problem that our client has. So again, taking that customer view of and saying, well, who is this customer? Well, it's a bank. What's their problem today? Well, the problem is that they were built on you know, a bank core from the 1970s, and that's the system they maintain customer records on, and they can't ship or build new products quickly, and it costs a lot to maintain, right? Like, let's say that's the problem set. The solution set we would bring then is a range of those Galileo and Technus's products where we'd say, well, let's build this together and how can we solve their problem? The interesting challenge there is, of course, you have two separate teams with two different backgrounds, potentially two different cultures, right? Two different go-to-markets, different marketing brands. How do you start to weave those things together? And that's what our team has been working on a lot the last six months is just to make it simpler for our clients. How do we just tell them a simpler story? It's not about changing or moving any technology. It's just making that a simple story to say, we're here to support whatever problem set you have. You don't need to see how that's made behind the scenes. Like we, We'll go do that work for you. We need to bring it back as a unified team and say, well, here's how the pieces work together. And that's a really fun challenge because it is one of the one plus one equal three math equations you want to see in an acquisition. 
But it's deep work where you're very internal saying, how do I fit these pieces together? And so that across the last really year has been a, a fun and interesting challenge, both getting to learn some of those new technologies and new sector, but then thinking through how we can bring that to light for clients. That's awesome. Uh, any other uh, RevOps sort of specific problems? Maybe not quite as, <laughs> as hard, perhaps. <laughs> um, I think some of the others are just navigating the current market, right? I mean, we're in a yeah. really uncertain time. We, we've had COVID the last few years. Certainly, there's a lot going on, I'd say, in the capital side of things. You have a lot of VCs and private equity pulling money back from startups and others or, or not funding them. So I think in that dynamic, oftentimes, revenue has to react the most quickly because you are the tip of the spear to customers and to clients. And so you're spending your time in market, hearing their problems, hearing from them. And so I think across the last six months, tightening the the communication between our go-to-market team and our product team, for example, really critical. Making sure that we're bringing that feedback back from the market. Here's some of the challenges that our clients have, right? Here are the products they need to ship. Oh, they're going to have an uphill revenue battle in this place, so we need to help them by supporting here. Or this geography is becoming really important to them. So Galileo has done a lot of expansion to Latin America, a lot of that driven by a number of our clients who are saying, hey, I really want to invest in these new markets as I see softening in some other markets. So making sure we're staying attuned enough to what we hear from our clients and partners to bring that back to internal teams to execute on. That just requires us balancing the needs of today from a revenue standpoint with giving that information for tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, the forecasting stuff is crazy. Any thoughts on how you're sort of looking at forecasting when it comes to enterprise deals? Because it's it's so difficult with uncertainty, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we use a lot of historical data. And this has been a really um, interesting piece of kind of our, our toolkit lately has been thinking through benchmarks and just kind of understanding what we can learn from the data we have from existing clients, especially as you think about forecasting. So as you think about successful programs, as you think about product adoption, as you think about your own client success, what can you learn from the data you have? Third-party external sources always useful too, and you certainly want to hear from the client their expectations and then do some waiting. But really looking at the, the internal data you have as you think about new sales or think about additional forecasts for existing clients is really critical. Everyone always spends as much time as you should on the data you have in-house because it's a lot easier to take a cold call with someone saying, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of data if you want. You can learn how the economy is going. Let me give you this report versus, well, what do I have inside the house that I can use? The problem for me that I've seen with our company is the velocity that you see if you're selling to tech, for example, pre the past you know three, four months. Like the velocity that you saw in 2022 versus the velocity that you see in Q1 of 2023, getting to contract seems identical. This is just totally anecdotal for us, but just painting the picture, seems identical. And then the response is, instead of saying, hey, we're going to do it, or hey, we're not going to do it, or hey, we're going to kick the can down the road, it's a lot of like, oh, we really want to do it. We (laughs) would buy it right now. But we have to wait until second half. Like if you were to model it the same way, yeah. how do you figure that stuff out? And that's, it's been tricky. Yeah, understood. And I have been in sales cycles before. That's definitely been the case. You know, at the start of, I mentioned backbone at the beginning of COVID where you're something like, no one is returning any calls because no one has any idea what's happening. Yeah. Right? And you're suddenly just like, what do we do? Well, how do we forecast? And that was a whole board meeting, which was like, how do we think about deals right now? Should we be spending our money and go to market? For us right now, because our clients do tend to be making multi-year investments 
in critical architecture and infrastructure. We don't see as yeah. much of that shift. In fact, some ways you could argue this exacerbates the need for it because you're like, well, this is a rebuild. Sure. You, you need to be putting this in place right now because if the economy is ticking up again, if you're responsible for generating more data for, you know, if our clients are banks and all of a sudden there's going to be more scrutiny from regulators post SVB, et cetera. A lot of our architecture and infrastructure can help with some of that data in those programs. We're like, hey, you really need to have the right system and the right setup and to be locked up. So it's it's not actually bad for us necessarily, but you'll always run into someone who might be a little more wary of those investments at, at a downtime. But given the current product we have and who the clients are in the need, we're not seeing that today. But I, I am sympathetic to that, again, given historic experiences. And I think the the route we usually took through is just real rigor with the sales team, where it's like really like, let's is this worth our time right now? Yeah. And being able to segment things into, we'll put them in a holding nurture pattern, no, really spend more time with them. Revisit, do we get the pain point right? Right. If they're saying this is interesting, but it's not now, is there another layer deeper we can go in, in the problem we're solving to make it more critical immediately? And I try to go that route versus getting creative with deal solutions. I, I would rather not discount to get someone in quarter if the better answer is prove the validity of the pain for this quarter. And I think a lot of times companies default too fast to that discounting versus, well, did we tell the right story? Is this critical for them? And do they have a path to value? And now, if you can't get there with that and they're saying, yes, yes, all that's true, but the economics are this, then start to discount. But until you know the economics are what's holding back, if it's fear or inability to connect to that value, making sure you're not giving a discount to solve that problem, I think is really critical in a time like this. It's an absolutely great insight. And it's a great, great point. Because like these are the type of times where the discounting might literally save you from them going to a competitor that they're not going to want to rip in six months. Yep. Uh, so that part being like outstanding and is very tricky and very, very difficult to know. But I think it's such a great point to say, this person is locked in on us. All the data is pointing to like, this is the type of person who's locked into us. That's what sales is saying. That's what everybody's saying. Everybody's in agreement here. We can just wait for six months for this deal and it'll probably close. We can discount them again if they don't want to buy in the second half of the year, which they said that they're committed to. That's a great insight. I'd um, rather end it to be able to say, well, if they're not buying now, is it truly just the economic or is it we didn't show them how we would deliver value immediately to them, right? Because a lot of times when I see a delay there and someone says, yeah, yeah, we're, gonna, we're really interested. We're going to visit in three months. I think you don't understand the value we would deliver in the next three months. And that's the problem is that I need to tie what we're solving for directly to what your objectives are for the next three months, right? And then if we've done that and you see the value and you're saying, I wish I could, I see this value, I want to buy it now, here is my budget, then let's get creative on numbers. But if I'm just hearing like, yeah, yeah, it's valuable, but let's wait a while, then I'm thinking you actually aren't connecting the value to your day-to-day and that's my gap to solve. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's really tricky to dig into those numbers over the course of a sales team that's 30, 40, 50, 100 people, 200 people, whatever the size of the sales team is, to say, hey, is every single person getting to that point or whatever? One question I have for you is about this idea of like, is there another stage that you need to add for this type of thing? Mm. If we could call it, you know, if we don't need to call it anything COVID anything anymore, but or further us our lives, the COVID stage or the like black swan stage, or it's like something just totally. happened that's super crazy. It really doesn't fit anywhere else on this thing. Like the, obviously the thing that happened with Silicon Valley Bank or you know, the sort of like tech apocalypse, these things that happen and you're just like, they are saying that the only reason for this thing is, hey, 
board said, nope, not spending one extra dollar over budget. Because like you said, you don't want to discount that person if they're going to pay full price in, in three months once this sort of Black Swan event mm-hmm. dies off. I don't know. What do you think about adding a stage? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I think I would segment out, again, those clients, and this would require real honesty and real pressure on the sales team, which I think we do pretty well at Gallet. We have a great team of really good salespeople who are very willing to put up with some of that like headbutting to get to the right solution of like, is this a good deal? We really pressure test those things a lot. But just from my own experience, I would say, if you pressure test boards that say, we're not spending another penny because of this Black Swan event, half them are going to turn out the board isn't sure of the value that you're providing in that moment, right? And so to me, it's the connecting of those dots. So if you can get to a really true assessment of like, no, we totally get it. We just, we can see our runway is X number of months and we're not willing to spend any money until that frees up. Then yes, that stage makes sense. But I worry that you'd have a lot of opportunities end up there that really aren't pressure tested opportunities for, did we showcase the value of our solution right now to someone? Like, do they understand what they're missing in the next three months by not using this, whether from a revenue perspective or an efficiency perspective or a pain perspective. That's the art of sales to me is is in that space right there of really being able to say, I know intimately my client's challenge. I understand it. And we have partnered to develop a solution for it. And if you've done that, you've done your job, right? Then there'll be a pricing conversation. There'll be a timing one, but they're going to be your advocate and fight for because they're like, this solves my problem. Like I have pain. I need new revenue or I need efficiency or I need to solve this thing. And you've given me a solution. I'm going to go fight for it. And to me, it's very rare you'll run into a board that's like, absolutely not. This solves your problem, but I don't care about your problem. Usually what that means that your champion doesn't understand or hasn't articulated the problem well enough to the board. I think it's tough if you're like, you're really not going to get to ROI for seven months, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing that could make that challenging. The other thing that I was just thinking of as we were talking about it is this sort of like, if you were to add like a black swan stage mm-hmm. in the middle of your pipeline, is like if you're using Kong or something like that, yep. you're like, hey, these 70 accounts all mentioned COVID, yep. you know, th- three or more times, yeah. coincidentally, right. all of these accounts are all in the nurture yep. now. Yeah, no, totally. Just totally. an idea. Yeah. Anything else on rev obstacles? No, just that the, I mean, I think ongoing, there's always rev obstacles, right? I mean, it's it's in our nature to be pushed. It's in our nature to have the um, the stretch goals and to be aiming a team at that. So I think that's the fun of it is, again, working cross-functionally on those teams to try to try to overcome those rev obstacles. How do you balance sales marketing and, and customer success? Mm. To me... Again, it gets back to a focus on that client and on who that client is. And I think the common language across all those functions is the client. And it's who they are and and what they need and what you're doing for them. So to me, in my head, again, approaching any meeting with one of my teams, right? So I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to meet the marketing team. I'm going to hear their objectives, hear how they're handling their OKRs for this quarter this year. A lot of that conversation then comes down to, well, how is this executing against those client targets, right? And that helps me draw a common link across. If I know, hey, for banks, you know, below 10 billion in assets, here's our targets for the year. Well, whether I'm talking to marketing or sales or customer success or partnerships, that conversation is consistent, right? Because this is what we're trying to deliver on for that, that client. And so that helps me then to put the ball back in the expertise of the team to say, well, I know these are our objectives. You're the experts at marketing, not me. So let's walk through the blockers you have in getting to these objectives. And let's walk through the work you're doing and 
Together, let's explore how we unblock those things. But it's it's referring back to that car, to that common language of the objective at the client level. As a CRO, one of the things who like oversees RevOps, one of the common sort of pitfalls is that you have either marketing or that customer success leader or whatever that feels like RevOps is serving potentially like sales first or whatever. Any advice for other RevOps leaders on how to make sure that sort of everybody's, when you have three, the three-headed hydra, as we like to say, when three mouths to feed, how do you make sure that you're feeding everyone appropriately? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. A lot of that comes down to the people, obviously. It comes down to the people you have in seat and your ability to help them understand the criticality of the other's contributions. I do think a lot of that also comes down to the objectives you set. And while I am a definite quant-focused person, I think also you need qualitative objectives as well. And so it's not just about hardline data, but it is about overall objectives. Like, yes, you can, you can classify brand by certain quantitative metrics and say, well, here's how we've achieved greater share of voice or we've increased our brand penetration. At the same time, there are intangibles there. And I think reflecting intangibles in each of those functional buckets helps to explain the value across teams to each other. And I think the second thing then on top of setting those right metrics that balance those two items is ensuring you have clear communication and you've tied some of those objectives to cross-functional things. So for example, lead generation in our organization is shared between our market engagement team, our marketing team, and our sales team, our VD team. Right. So that is, they're all responsible for leads. That could be challenging if you say, well, I want, you know, one single person to hold accountable. But at the same time, if you have senior leaders enough and you're holding each of them accountable for some piece of that, you're really incentivizing them to collaborate against an objective. And in my opinion, that's where you get much better results than saying one person's responsible when in truth it is a cross functional initiative. Right. Leads are not the responsibility of one function, they're the responsibility of an overall org. You have to incentivize all of them to accomplish against that. But helping to build objectives that they share and then holding them jointly accountable and then giving them a language to speak to each other for collaboration. And then again, getting out of their way to let them do that. Stepping in as needed to set direction or to help solve for specific issues. To me, those are the, the that's the recipe for success. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, let's get to our next segment, The Tool Shed. Hey, hey Brandon, Michael, want to do me and mom a favor, get off that shed? This is my favorite place, <laughs> the tool shed. Get off the shed! Where we're talking tools, spreadsheets, metrics, just like everyone's favorite tool, Qualified. No B2B tool shed is complete without Qualified. You can go to qualified.com right now and check them out. You can chat with someone right now about how great Qualified is and uh, how much it can uh, help you grow your pipeline. So go to qualified.com and check it out. The tool shed, Seth. What's in your tool shed? So spend time in a range of different tools. A lot of times I'll admit I'm not the, the best end user of the tool. And so what I get is report outs or yeah. reports from teams. But for that, of course, you know, Salesforce. I uh, love Salesforce. Love the reports we can build. Don't ask me to construct anything in it. We have teams that do that. But I, I do love the, the reports and the outcomes I get from it. And I do spend a lot of time there reviewing what you would expect. You know, leads, opportunities, reviewing our target lists, reviewing our performance against those. We use a range of other tools within marketing and sales. So certainly Marketo, I think Clue is a, a really cool competitive tool we use. Chili Pepper 
and then ring lead and zoom info for the generation and targeting. So a mix of all those teams used across our teams. You know, as you grow in an org, I think one of the challenges with tools is always thinking about who needs access to this and where you can just provide the outcomes and the insight. And so we spent a lot of time in that, especially again with two platforms, Galileo and Technicist, you can come with different tools. And so meshing and melding those is is always interesting. But to me, it's, you know, the place I get the most reports out of would be a Salesforce or then internal dashboards that are built from some collection of those things. How do you think about bringing new tools onto the organization as a CRO? Because if a RevOps person on your team says, hey, I really want to do this, and it's maybe a little tough to quantify like ROI because you're like, but this increased visibility is really important. I'm just curious, how do you, how do you think about investing in, in new things? It's a really good question. And I, I tend to personally always be down for an iterative attempt at something. So again, yeah. the lower cost a tool is to implement and test, the better, in my opinion. You give me something for a month, let us use it, let us see if it's sticky. And, and I do like products that that lead that way and that give you the chance to use them because I am always up for that challenge and say, yeah, let's take a look. Let's see if this does some value. You have to always think about expenses, certainly, and that ROI. And to me, part of that right input is, again, identifying, even if it's not purely quantitative, identifying the specific value you're trying to get out of that tool. So rather than it being like, oh, this supplements this, it's like, well, what's our intended outcome? What actions are we going to take because of this? And we say, okay, let's test it for 30 days, then let's look at whether we can set metrics against it. But I think that balance is really pushing back. Like, what are we trying to accomplish with it? What does it give us? So it's not just a gap that it's filling. Because a lot of times gaps that are filled, I have found were left there because they weren't important enough to be filled, right? There are definitely gaps that should be filled. But a lot of times you'd say, well, no one solved that problem because it, yeah, it hurts a little bit, but it's not killer. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a feature yeah, build. Yeah, exactly. It's, so, it's a feature build of some other... Some other company is just going to add that as a feature someday, and it's and you're going to be, you know, some people are going to love it, other people won't use it. No, totally. So pressure testing that um, a little bit and saying like, hey, okay, if we're if we're filling this gap, it's because we need to get to X outcome. I had a tool brought to me. It was actually earlier today. That was basically like we need to go from the pro to the enterprise or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and it was basically double the cost. And it's like one of those things where you're like, yeah, y'all are using it, you're loving it, you're like, you want to double this, and you're like, let's oh, double the cost. It's kind of a lot of money, but you're like. Is it going to double productivity? Like, no. But how do we calculate the work hours of the, like all that sort of stuff? It's the classic CIO thing where you're like, honestly, if it keeps people happy and they can do their jobs better, even if it's ex- expensive, that like that's a retention tool. It's like a really good thing having people do their jobs better. And it's like it's just something that sometimes we spend all this effort and energy in to figure out how to sell our solutions. And sometimes it just boils down to like, I just like working yeah. in this, you know, like I like my team working in this. Right. Totally. You know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, honestly, that's really important because sometimes you might say yes to that, knowing that it carries certain morale or certain, you know, happiness or or general satisfaction for your team and it's low enough cost. You're like, okay, like listen, this is worth it for solving this general pain for the team or this gap versus the outcome. But I think honesty on that's really helpful. You don't want 30 of those tools, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, what metrics matter to you? Yeah, I would love to say something unique or interesting there, but I don't know that we have anything. I mean, it's, you know, within marketing and sales, we look a lot at lead generation. We look a lot at overall digital footprint, um, then looking at opportunities and revenue from them. So certainly by the lead to opportunity to client stage, we're looking at a different range of things, developing a maturity across them. And so some of the metrics there might be the forecast value of total contracts within the 
opportunity stage and breaking that out by the segments and then tracking that back to the leads and looking at the conversion there and then tracking that back to the lead source and looking at the cost of those leads from each of those sources. So again, I wouldn't say anything groundbreaking there. To me, I, I don't spend a ton of time trying to reinvent metrics. I do like to spend time on analysis there versus here's the metric itself and here's the measurement. It's why right? What's happening back there? Uh, what led to this shift up? What led to the shift down? Can we trace that back and, and actually fix the underlying root lever we pulled to that change? And, and I think spending more time in that space to me is important increasingly as you move enterprise. And in that space, well, it's less about those top line numbers sometimes and more about, well, how do I change to get two more deals? right? They're valuable enough. And so spending time in the analysis of those things to me and, and really understanding the why behind those metrics and how to affect change in them is where the bulk of conversation should be. Any blind spots that you feel like you'd, uh, you'd like to figure out an answer to? Man, does anyone know how to measure TAM really well? I know. <laughs> Great question. I saw a TAM measurement the other day that was so bad. <laughs> so bad. I was like, this is like, like on a napkin. Uh-huh. I just think it is, no matter where you go, I think startups to large companies, you end up with the same, which is like someone made a decision somewhere to put these numbers in a spreadsheet. And yes, they started with some data that said there are so many companies. And then they made an estimate as to the value of a contract with those companies. Yeah. And then made some conversion yeah. number in that cell. And then you're like, boom, TAM. And to me, so many business cases are made or broken by TAM. And yet it's always put together kind of haphazardly in some ways. Even when you do it well, you're kind of saying, I don't know how many SMBs are there in America, right? <laughs> it's, yeah. you know, so I, that to me is always just the blind spot for everybody, I would say. That's fun. Yeah, that's a really good one. You haven't mentioned like account-based marketing or account-based experience or account-based mm-hmm. stuff. Are you messing around with that at all? Yeah, absolutely. Galileo, again, serves, I would say, across the gamut of organizations. So across the last 20 years, it's been a business, both in and Texas, have served startups who are kind of developing these things, as well as enterprises and brands. And so we do run across it. And especially now in this environment, we're seeing a lot of demand from larger enterprises and larger banks, a lot of bigger organizations who are seeking the the products we have. And so account-based market becomes really important at that level in my mind, where you say, well, I know that there would be a really good client fit across these 50. We implement them well. We know they're successful. Like this, they would find value in this service or this product. So how do we reach them with that message? And to me, a, a cohesive account-based marketing strategy is really critical there. And that's, again, to get to our earlier conversation on alignment between sales and marketing, that's where you're kind of poking sales in the side and saying, hey, you really need marketing here. Marketing is going to be your best friend, right? And not just from a blast out an email to 100 people. Marketing is going to be your best friend to help you build a refined, specific story that talks about value to a customer that will convert well for you, and that'll be successful. And so that's really valuable, but you got to get in the mix with them. And you got to talk through so that you're not bombarding you know, the same client with ad hoc messages while you're running a marketing campaign to try to get their attention. you got to be balanced across those things, but absolutely on ABM. I love the phrase that it's actually you need to be the chief market officer as a marketer first and foremost. Like I love that idea that it's like you understand where the market is going, how people are behaving in the market, all that yeah. stuff, how the accounts behave in the market. That gives all of that information right. back to sales, who is super granular, focused on like closing these yeah, deals. Absolutely. Um, and I think that matters a lot for the context as well. Good salespeople are obviously hyper-focused on getting to the decision maker and to the right committees there. I do think sometimes, however, 
salespeople being who they are think, hey, let me get a contact and I'll sell my way up to the org, right? <laughs> Whereas yeah. you say, well, marketing can help you be a little bit more structured there and potentially reach people that, you know, it's not your, it's not a warm intro that you had and it's not you cold calling someone. It's actually getting someone interested in coming to have a conversation with you. And if it's the right buyer, that's going to be a much better conversation. So let's spend a little time there versus maybe just wailing away at the project manager, you know, from high school who ended up working there. And you're like, they're not, they're not getting you up the ladder to where you need to go. Yep. And you're like, I've been working this account for two years. And it's like, well, we just put their, you know, CIO on one of our podcasts. And now we have a conversation going with the person at the top of the organization. Exactly. Exactly. Any other thoughts on uh, software, data, tools, dashboards, systems? No, to me, again, it's, a, it's all about integrating those things into a conversation. It's about how can you use those systems and tools to bring together in one place. And that's, we do weekly pipeline meetings where we're bringing together marketing, sales, and partnership content to kind of have a conversation across all those entities so people understand where pieces fit and they're able to kind of relate to each other and understand those objectives and then chime in where supportive. So to me, the systems are entree to the data that is entree to a conversation amongst the cross-functional team that gets really to the actions that need to be taken. All right, let's get to our final segment, Quick Hits. Quick! Quick questions and quick answers. Seth, are you ready? Number one, if you could make any animal, any size, what animal would it be and what size? Mm. I think having tiny elephants would be pretty awesome. Like just little elephants that were like fun home pets. You could have like roaming around your house at any moment. Like that'd be, that'd be pretty awesome. Those cute little tricks. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have a RevOps misconception? Yeah, to me, it's, it's, it's sales. You know, or it's spreadsheets, right? You're like, oh, RevOps is the people who do like sales compensation. And you're like, well, be much bigger than that. Yeah. So lean into the forward, lean into the future prediction that you have either for RevOps or about RevOps or anything like that? Mm. I think there's some really interesting structures you could get to that are um, not functional based, but certainly segment and kind of team orientation based, which is to say, thinking about really your entire functional setup in terms of the client versus the function. Having bespoke little engines of revenue that are the mix of the right marketing and sales and partnerships people towards it. I think you see a little bit more of that in market today. It's harder to pull off because so many of those investments and expenses reach across team. And so from a PL perspective, you start to get into challenges when you're breaking up expenses across those, but it's solvable. And then you get to the talent issue of, well, how do I have the right team leaders in these places? But I think if you could execute on that, I think it's it's definitely a great way to go to market and increasingly important right now when buyers require you to have expertise in who they are. And they're like, I don't want to talk to four different people in your org. So the more you can be cohesive around that client and go to market there. And I think there'll be a lot more interesting structures built around that in the, in the future, especially look at some of the technologies out there, things like conversational AI, where it's like, well, you can start off a conversation here to bring into your sales team this way. I think there's a lot to build on there. Last question, Seth, what is your best advice for someone who is newly leading a RevOps team? This is general advice, but I think particularly important in RevOps where it is very, tends to be a lot of people who are in some ways extroverted or or at least client and team focused, but your job is always people, right? And increasingly as your responsibility grows and you own more teams or own more functions, like your responsibility and your job is even more so always people. And I think sometimes with RevOps and go-to-market, that can get lost in the, no, my job is to be a salesperson. Like, 
I am not the best salesperson by far on our team. I will just tell you that. Like, I would rather have any of our salespeople talking to clients than me. But my job is to support them. It is to support our clients. It is to support those team members. And no matter the size of your work for RevOps or go-to-market, no matter who your client is, your job is people. And that's just a thing worth remembering no matter what changes. Seth, it's been awesome having you on the show. Any final thoughts here? Anything to plug? No, thanks for having me on. This has been fun. Really enjoyed it. I love go-to-market. I love our team and our Galileo team. And we're having a lot of fun going to market right now. And I do think the more of these stories we could tell, I think the more interest people have in this as a career path, I think sales gets a bad rap sometimes. But if you look at the amount of strategy and coordination that goes into revenue, I think it's a really interesting career path for a lot of people who may not consider it. I'm excited for podcasts like this to reach some of those people. So thanks for having me on and thanks for the conversation. Thank you for listening to Rise of RevOps. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you're listening. This podcast was created by the team at Qualified. The Pipeline Cloud is the modern way B2B revenue teams generate pipeline. Learn more at qualified.com.